I uh, typed in what would be the most famous argument against the existence of God on Google. And lo and behold, this is the one that came up. It is a long, long-standing argument. And so what we're doing in this next few Wednesdays, we're going to be discussing some of these things, some of these arguments against the Christian faith, some of the strongest ones. And we're going to try to see if we can come up with some answers from the Scripture in order to answer those questions. Because they're questions not only that other people that are not believers have been wrestling with, but we've, we've wrestled with this in some level or some degree, maybe not the exact same way, but we've wondered. And so this is a way of not only building our faith by being here, by hearing what the Scripture has to say about it, but helping us to become a good witness, to be able to go out into the world and to be able to defend our faith and give a reason for the hope that's within us. And so I applaud you guys for being here and those who are able to attend or those who will be watching. Um, this is good. You have a thirst and that's why you're here. Um, so what we're going to be doing is going through one of the toughest ones. The problem of evil, which is also the problem of theodicy. And so many of us have had this question. I know that my children had this question very young in life. How many of you have had this question asked to you? Maybe by unbelieving family members or people at work. A few, right? So it was a chief argument that I would use to come against the Christian faith when I was an atheist. So that is something that I want to also deal with is because this was used as an attack method too against us in this way. It's not just discussed by philosophers through modern times, but the men of Scripture have dealt with this issue as well. We're going to see that the most brilliant mind in Scripture, aside from Christ, is Solomon. Solomon deals with this in Ecclesiastes. He talks about it, or at least a form of it. We're going to see Habakkuk is, David is, and there's many more. We could do two sermons on this because there's actually a lot in Scripture. If there's lots in Scripture, that means God wants us to know some answers about this. It's not such a mystery as we might think in some level. There's a famous apologist and Christian philosopher. His name is Ronald Nash. He says this, and I share his view he says, I share the view that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. So, we don't want to cast it aside. We want to take this head on. So tonight, we hope to provide some answers to the scripture, not man-based philosophical arguments. I'll touch a little bit on those, but we're not going to be putting a lot of stock in those. We're going to, talk, we're going to try to figure out what God has to say. And whatever view we have on any issue, we want the Lord to speak through his word regarding it. So, what is the problem of evil? Evil, we need to figure out what the definition is. Otherwise, we could be kind of shooken up a little bit when we read the scripture. There's really, when you see the word evil in scripture, it could be two different things. One, it could be Moral evil, that might be an answer on your little test there. So there's two different types. One of them is moral evil. This is completely foreign to the nature and character of God. We see that in Genesis 6.5, Proverbs 6.12-19, Mark 7.21-22, to 
And Romans 12, 21. God cannot behold this type of evil even with his eyes. He is pure. He is perfectly upright and just and righteous. There's no darkness that can be found in him at all. And he will never tempt a man with this type of evil. It is, a, is it, though, a substance? What is it? Is it something that I can touch? Could I say, go grab me that piece of evil and you could grab it for us? Is it a thing that was ever created? And what is it exactly? Evil in Scripture is well represented by these words. Twisted or crooked. A lack or a distortion of something that was once good. That's how we could define this form of evil. Sin or evil is a corruption or a twisting of something that was wholly good at one point in time. So you think of a rusty car. Rust is a continuously growing corruption on the original car. It damages what was formerly perfect. And even how it functions will eventually fall apart. The car is in a state of imperfection and wounded from its former glory. This is evil. It is a plague upon the soul. It is a lack in something. But it doesn't have its own form. Evil then, in a sense, is a parasite that cannot survive without its host. In these evils, however, this type of evil that man will walk through, God is still sovereign over it. He doesn't invent evil. He doesn't create man's evil. But God will channel it. And he'll direct it into different places for his grand purposes. We see the evil of nations Babylon, Assyria in the scripture, and what do we see is God moves it into certain places for his purposes, or he takes it completely out of the picture. And this is important to understand because the God that we worship is the God of scripture. And so scriptures like this need to be taken into account with our theology. After David's affair with Bathsheba, in 2 Samuel 12, 11, it says this, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity. In the NASB, that's evil. Against you from your own house. Now, is he creating evil? Is he making evil for David's house? No. We find out that the Lord actually channels it. He doesn't create it and make it and put it upon people, but it is in the world and he channels it where he chooses to do so. The Lord will even use evil to discipline others, and he does with David in his case. So moral evils are not God's fault, but he does use them in his plans. Moral evil is us choosing what is against God and revealing our twisted, corrupted natures. The second form of evil, or term for evil, is a term that is often seen in Scripture is translated calamity. So it's a, it could be physical or mental misfortunes, natural evils, disasters, perhaps storms, plagues, sicknesses, and things of that sort. This makes up 40% of the term evil in the Bible. And just as in moral evils, these natural evils, we see the Lord still in complete control. Here's some scriptures I want you to look at, and you'll see them just up on uh, behind me here. Amos 3, 3 to 8 says, A trumpet is blown in a city, 
Will not the people be afraid? If there is calamity in the city, will not the Lord have done it? Job 2.10 Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Isaiah 31.12 Yet he also is wise and, and will bring disaster, and will not call back his words, but rise against the house of evildoers and against the help of those who work iniquity. And Ecclesiastes 7.14 In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider surely God has appointed one as well as the other and mental calamity we even see that in 1 Samuel 16 14 and that's an extra one but the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him so this is important for our theology is that we understand how God works with it that he is not the creator of it but now that it is in this world he does he, will have, he directs it, and he's got purposes with it. He's going to use it. Side note for the Christian, <clears throat> these scriptures are critical for our theology. If it, we often, sometimes what people will do is they'll invent a God or make a God in order to deal and wrestle with this question. And so they might invent a God who doesn't know the future because... If God knows the future, they find that to be a problem with this question. And so that's something that has happened in church history. Your view, your theology of what a loving and benevolent and merciful God is must account for these scriptures too. God is the God of love, but also within his love for man and his people, there is a place that he uses calamity for as well. Our God is a part of these scriptures that we sometimes feel uncomfortable with, but it is our God. Nevertheless, he is wonderfully glorious, perfect, and good, even in these. Can we say amen to that? Amen. Now, the belief in a loving God who controls all things is, is what makes this problem of evil only really a problem for Christians. Unfortunately, it is our issue. Uh, because we believe in an all-powerful, all-loving, personal God, we are the ones that seem like we have to kind of explain this to the world. Different worldviews don't have this problem. It's not a major issue to them. They manage it completely different. For example, in atheism, the problem is there, but evil and suffering is just a part of a world without God. The natural processes that happen. A universe that's indifferent to evil or suffering. It just cares about procreation. So for them, they don't really deal with it. It's, it's already explained. In pantheism, or certain beliefs that believe God is the universe, and the universe is God, they would even just deny that there's evil in the first place. There's other religions, such as Taoism, where evil is a force just as strong as good, and they're battling it out. So when somebody says, what's wrong with the evil and suffering in this world? They'll say, well, the evil just seems to be winning this time, but don't worry, the good will come back. And so that would be their answer for it. But with Christianity, we believe in an all-powerful, all-perfect, all-loving, all-knowing personal God who can control all things. And so for the world, they say, you have some explaining to do. We're now going to look at some of those philosophical issues with this. An attempt to explain this problem and come to an answer.
After that, we're going to let God speak for himself. We're going to go to the scriptures on it. So the problem of theodicy goes like this. It actually came up from a, a philosopher. A philosopher invented this term in 1710 who was aiming to show that evil in the world is not in conflict with the loving God. We're not going to use that term much. I thought that was just a funny, fun little million dollar word for you. But theodicy is it. But the general problem goes something like this that you see up behind me. God is said to be good, loving, and all-powerful. That's the first premise. But there's pointless, natural, and moral evil in this world. If God is all-powerful, he could prevent that evil. If God is loving and good, he would want to prevent that evil. God has not removed evil. So it seems then that God is neither all-powerful, loving, or good. Therefore, a good, all-knowing, and loving God does not exist. And that's how the argument, one of the best forms of the argument I've seen, goes. Where does the argument break down? The first one is true. God is said to be good, loving, and all-powerful. Absolutely. That's perfect. We're, We're not in dispute over that premise. That's good. This is where we break down. There is no such thing as pointless things. doesn't matter if it's suffering. doesn't matter if it's a molecule in a universe run by the God of the Bible. This is a worldview difference now. Their assumption in this argument is that there's pointless evil. That's not true. That's an assumption that they're making. Their argument breaks down right here. And so if God is all-powerful, he could prevent evil. If God is loving good, he would want to. Well, that's not necessarily true then either. Because God could have good reasons for not permitting or not preventing certain types of evils. There could be a reason for that. And so therefore, the next one is a false conclusion. God has not removed evil, so it seems that he's not. That's not true. And the last one is also false. And it all started with number two. It was an assumption that there is purposeless evils in the world. So here are some potential and traditional views that have attempted to explain this problem. There's one that is deny God's nature in some way. So these are some ways that people have tried to discuss and come through this problem. We could deny his nature. We could deny maybe his goodness or his intelligence or his ability to know the future. We could deny something about him in order to make this work. There's an Irenaean view as well. There's a free will defense that is probably the most popular. And then there's an anti-theodicy view as well. So let's take a look at all of these. And let's discuss some of the the problems with them as well. So the first one is to deny God's all-powerful nature as goodness in some way. So this view comes about by accepting the idea that if evil exists, God definitely would want to get rid of it because he is loving. Since evil's still here, he must not be powerful enough to remove the evil, or he's not good in the same way that I would define good. That would be this argument. The problem with it 
is Scripture refutes this idea because we see God does have power over evil. He, we see in Scripture all the time He thwarts the plans of the wicked. He can change them. He can move them around. He can snuff them out completely if He wants to. And so we see that in Scripture. He has obvious power over it. And we also see that He is perfect in goodness. And goodness is a pretty basic understanding of it. Perfect. He's flawless. He's good. And so to change God's attributes, to get God off the hook for something, is a dangerous, heretical way of going about it. It's a bad idea. Because we recreate a God in order to deal with this question. And it has led to bad theology in the past. The next view is the Irenaean view. Irenaeus was an early church father. And he also dealt with this. You could tell because of the name of his view. But he says this, that evil is essential to our development as God created man in relationship with him. So he would say evil at least the form that I've seen, is evil's necessary in order to build us, sanctify us, to put us into a deeper relationship with God. We need it. Almost like as, a, as an athlete needs to burn his muscles in order to get good at what he's doing and to win the race, so does God use this, and this is the chief purpose of it. It builds our moral character. In this way, evil is essential to sanctifying us. Now, while it's true, evil can sanctify us. When we go through problems and sufferings, it often will build our faith because God will use it that way. There's, more, there's problems with this view too. The problem is that man can be made in a right relationship with God without evil or suffering involved. Adam and Eve. The unfallen angels were perfect without the presence of evil, and yet they were in a good relationship with God. They did, that wasn't necessary. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there's not going to be any suffering or evil for us to stumble into. So it won't be necessary for our growth with God either. We'll be in a good, loving relationship with God without the presence of evil or suffering. So the argument doesn't quite line up. This is probably one of the harder ones to explain. But this is one of the more contemporary views. The view says that God wanted to make human beings to have free will. Why? So they could choose to love God and not be forced like a machine. But to give free will to humans would mean that they would also have the ability to not choose God and open up the door for the existence of evil. So proponents of this view would claim then that according to God, an earth of free creatures with evil is better than a world of human flesh robots that can't choose love. And in this view, God will not alter free decisions, but he allows them to choose him freely. It's all, and I've heard it one, at one point said this way, that God, when he was going to create the world, he could see all the different types of worlds he can create and where he's going to put the people and what kind of choices they're going to make. He, out of all the different possibilities, chose the world where the most amount of people would choose him freely to be saved. Very philosophical. 
The problem with this view is again, man's will after the fall is fallen and depraved. It doesn't choose God freely unless there's divine enablement. Unless God renews my will and my mind, I won't choose him. Man, including his will, is dead in sin. Ephesians 2.1 tells us that. Men will therefore not choose God unless they're drawn, as we see in John 6.44. Nor will man even initially f- seek after God. We see that in Romans 3.10-11. Unredeemed man chooses sin over God every time. That's his natural bend. Unless God takes the initiative of grace and regenerates us from the inside out, and our will, then we will not choose him. In Scripture, we do, see having, we do see ourselves as having a will, but it's never seen as free but bound to sin. We need the saving grace of God to heal us in order to choose Christ. Another issue with this argument, too, is that the new heavens and new earth, again, men will be serving God and loving him for eternity, Yet there's no ability to choose evil anymore in heaven, it seems. Our will seems limited, that we only choose that which is good. We seem to be restored and with our new nature, we no longer have a desire to turn away from God. Could it still be said that we love God? Without the ability to choose evil at the same time, of course, we're still loving God. That's the future we head into. And then the third problem with this view is the idea of God rearranging all of creation and history for the sake of earning man's favor and free will choice is kind of an odd one. So God, is God so desperate for human love that he rearranges the universe and history in just the right way so he can get the most of the amount of the people around him to love him? It seems to put the will of mankind at the most important part of God's consideration when he created the world. Rather, in Scripture, what we do see is when God creates the world, it's for His glory, for His Son's glory, for His name's sake. So the Scripture is not man-centered at all, but God-centered. And it focuses upon that. And then what we have, the final view, is an anti-theodicy view. Now, this view was established after the Holocaust, more so. They would say, those who hold this view, that the judging of God on this issue, according to our limited ethics, our limited understanding, is out of line for us to even start thinking about. It'd say that this this argument or this question is so far beyond us, we shouldn't even be asking it in the first place. I'm a little sympathetic towards this view. However... It's a non-answer. It doesn't really answer the question. And while I sympathize with this view, I believe that because this issue is brought up so often in Scripture, God does desire us to have insight on this issue of evil and suffering in His Word. And so now, let's take some time to go through the Scripture and see what the Lord has to say about why He has permitted certain types of evil and suffering. Now, when it comes to talking with people about this issue, a good idea to ask is when they say, why did God create evil and suffering? 
Ask them, what is it that troubles them? Is it death? Is it the fact that there are, is it children in hospitals? Is it the fact of injustice? And that will help you. Because what you're going to notice is through the scripture as we go through it, there's going to be different emphasis on different forms of evil. And while we go through all of these different types of scripture, there is no place where I could say that tornado or that child in the hospital, the reason why they're there is this reason. I can't say that. All I can do and give to a person is possible reasons why God has done it in the past and therefore possible reasons why he's doing it now. And that's the best you can do, and that's okay. Because we only know what Scripture gives us. We don't want to go beyond that. Now, there are numerous people in the Bible who struggle with this question and have received various answers from God. Some of them, I'm going to say, are more in a negative light. And I don't mean that in a bad way, but I mean that is in a negative light, their answers that generally people are not going to be as comforted by. But there's some that are more in a positive light, in a sense, that will comfort people. These might be ones that will good, be good to come alongside your Christian brothers and sisters and say, hey, be comforted in this time. So we're going to go through some of those and take a look at that. First, let's look at this issue where God provides the answer in a very general sense. I was talking about that with, with some people even earlier today, right before we, we did this, and the answer immediately came out of their mouth, but Genesis. And I said, bingo. That this is a great place to start. No matter where you are on this argument, you, you, you can stay here and have a good answer for someone. The Genesis account of sin's entrance in the world is extremely valuable to us, because it actually tells you that God is not the creator of evil. It shows that. But evil came in through man. That evil was man's issue. And because of that, there was consequences for it. And so in Genesis, we see that God did not create it, evil or suffering. It was because of Adam and Eve's choice to disobey that God then judged and cursed men and even nature itself through that. There would now be pain and suffering introduced into the world and death because men were now denied access to the tree of life. But I want you to notice that even in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fell, the curse was hard work. The curse was childbearing. But at that time, there was no one murdering each other, not till the next generation. There was no mass murdering going on until generations following where the flood would have to come in. So you see man progressively taking his sin nature and making it worse in Scripture. This is a classic answer to this question. It's a good Sunday school answer to the kids. And it's a good one for us to remember. And at the bare minimum, this is the answer that we ought to be able to explain to anyone who asks. It's the easiest answer. But I want us to go into a little bit more meaty answers. They'll help us to have a more detailed um, answer for those specific questions. So let's start with the concerns of a certain prophet. Habakkuk 1, 2-4 kind of shows us Habakkuk's issue. And Habakkuk is looking and he's thinking at Judah. He's looking at a corrupt Judah. And he's saying, Lord, why won't you save? I see all of these things going on. Let's read. It says, O Lord, how long shall I cry, 
and you will not hear. Even cry out to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. So do you see his concern? He's looking at the corruption of Judah. And he's saying the law is not working. People are being oppressed. Lord, save us. Why do you not save? The argument for that whole chapter, Habakkuk 1 is a prayer in a similar regard towards that. Chapter 2 is when God answers him. The argument is why do you not answer our prayers and save us from suffering and wicked? God will respond with a series of woes upon Judah for its corruption and he'll reassure Habakkuk that there will be an appointed time when the right of God will be turned against them. This is his answer, God's answer to Habakkuk. God brings forth the first answer. You, and he's talking about the wicked men of Judah, are filled with shame instead of glory. The cup of the Lord's right hand will be turned against you. And utter shame will be on your glory. So in this passage, the prophet recognizes that wicked and evil people are responsible for the evils that are going on in society. We see that in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see that in Nineveh, Edom, non-Jewish places, where we see a cry that usually comes out from the prophets. However, there's a hope that God will come in the end to the evil that's found in Judah and rescue those innocent ones. And God says it will happen. Will be turned against you. There's a hope. God will judge and cause the wicked to suffer in due time those who are oppressing the nations, at which point he will liberate the innocent and return evil upon the wicked. God's answer for why there's suffering and that it will be soon resolved. So be patient. That's his answer here. It will, uh, justice is coming. Be patient. So that is an answer in a sense. It doesn't fully answer our question, but what it does do is it gives you something to say is that the man who looks to you or the woman who looks to you and says, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? I'm concerned with all this political corruption. You could say this. Well, the book of Habakkuk says that in their day, that would be dealt with. And it was dealt with. And in the scriptures, we know that in the end in Revelation, God will judge those who have done this corruption. You just have to be patient. And you have a scriptural answer for them for that particular question. David also deals with this exact question. Psalm 10, 8-9 says, He, he's talking about the wicked man, sits in the lurking places in the villages. In the secret places he murders the innocent. His eyes are secretly fixed on the helpless. He lies in wait secretly as a lion in his den. He lies in wait to catch the poor. He catches the poor when he draws him into his net. So he's looking at even the details in which corruption are going on. And then David calls out to God on behalf of the suffering and the innocent. And he says, Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Don't forget the humble. 
And yet, in his cries, David reveals that he too needs to wait on the Lord and trust in the character of God. Because it says there, in verse 17 to 18, it says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will prepare their heart. You will cause your ear to hear, to do justice to the fatherless and to the oppressed, that the man of the earth may oppress no more. So David doesn't stop believing in God. Doesn't, he never questions the Lord's character. In fact, it's the Lord's character that ends up being his refuge. As he wrestles with this in the psalm. You, Lord, I have confidence in. Though the wicked are doing this, I know you. And I know you will not allow this to continue on forever. Now we're going to see this a little bit with Job. Arresting in God's character. Therefore, if someone were to ask you, this might be on your little test. If someone were to ask you, why does God permit so much evil and suffering in the world from evil people? You have an answer in this way from these two scriptures. Moral evil and suffering are because of evil people. But the wicked will be brought to justice by God in time. Moral evil and suffering are, be are because of evil people, but the wicked will be brought to justice by God in time. Why is there certain types of violence, murder, stealing? Why is there lying oppression, political corruptions in the world? Men are doing these things to each other. However, God is good and they will be held accountable. That gives us comfort in that form of suffering because we know that whether, if justice isn't established here on earth, our God will establish it. The next one we're going to see is Solomon. Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 7, 1-4. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Listen to this. Better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. Why? For that's the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. How? The heart is made wise in the house of mourning. Solomon is revealing an overarching benefit to evil and suffering in a fallen world. Specifically regarding suffering involving death and mourning. There is more benefit, he's saying, in a funeral home than at a wedding where you're partying and having fun. Because at a funeral home, when your loved one has passed on, the living will take it to heart. And through mourning and suffering in that sense, the heart will be made wise. What's the benefit? Well, at a funeral, you're given an eagle eye's view of the temporary nature of life. And it's easier to see this when someone that you've loved has just passed on. It awakens spirits from sometimes being lethargic, apathetic, concerned with worldly concerns or materialism. Many have come to Christ based on the funeral of another person. I personally have a, a brother in the Lord who him, he came to the Lord because of the Sandy Hook Massacre. Because he said, if someone's willing to shoot up a school of children, there's definitely evil in this world, and therefore there must be a good. There must be a God. His heart was made wise. And his wife, 
came to the Lord when her cousin died and drowned in a pond. Both of them who are married, their hearts were made wise and quickened because of a house of mourning, a place of mourning. So then could a fatal sickness do this? Could a funeral do this? Death and the suffering surround us reminds us of the futility of, the, of certain things. And it redirects our soul from vain things to eternal. It awakens the instinct for eternity that Solomon says is written on your heart in chapter 3. So, here's the next answer for you. If someone asks you why a good, and God, a good God would allow so much suffering and evil, and they're specifically focused on death, you can say that through death, God awakens the living and provides wisdom with regards to our eternity. There's a purpose in that. And I've talked about it with some people in this room. We've, we've preached the gospel to our families. What if the God is going to use my funeral to do it? Because that will quicken them and give them wisdom. Then there's, there, there is purpose then in my funeral. And that's a good thing in God's plan. Whatever it takes, Lord, to bring my family to Christ. We also see this with Jesus. John 9, 1 to 12. Now, this is a more positive response in a sense. Now, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but that the works of God should be revealed. So why was there suffering when, Chris, when, when Christ ministered on earth? We saw blindness. We saw inability to walk. We saw death. We saw leprosy. All of those, or at least many of those, were done in order to give glory to God and to point people to Christ. It was used for his purposes in that way. It comes right from the mouth of Christ. It's not because of past sins of parents or sins that he would commit, but that the work of God should be revealed. The man's healing was permitted. His suffering was permitted in order to glorify God later. So this blind man's suffering endurance was so that the power and the glory of God might be revealed in Christ. Every single healing in the Bible precedes suffering and glorified God because Christ showed that he could cast away suffering. And forms of evil. Why then would God allow for suffering? Here's an answer. Because some forms of suffering will ultimately glorify God. And we know people even today, and I could, we could probably take hands, of how many people have been healed and the doctors have no idea how that happened. But you remember, and the people that were around that person remember, and they're glorifying God even to this day because... God healed them. And the Lord has used that. We see Jesus also mentioning it in this scripture. In Luke 13, 1 to 5, he deals with it as well. And this is more of not only a moral evil, but a natural evil too. So he's dealing with both types of evil in this passage. There were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans. Who the, <coughs> excuse me, 
whose blood Pilate had mingled in their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or, and here's the natural disaster one, or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So natural evils are the focus here. What about answering the question of natural evils? Tornadoes, plagues, and things like that. Hand of God scenarios, they call. The insurance will call them. How does Jesus answer the question? Are disasters used by God to punish only the greatest sinners? Jesus says no. Jesus doesn't give them any more of an answer. But what he does in the scripture is he turns it around and he applies the tragic event to them and says these particular people were people who did not repent. So God took them out of this world. Therefore, Jesus reminds them that they too must repent while they have breath. So if someone were to ask you why a good God would allow for so much evil and suffering and they're thinking of natural disaster... An answer could be, well, those who died in tragedies died according to God's timing. But the question is, and this is where we could lead into the gospel, have you repented yet? Are you ready for death? Here's your gospel transition in a question like this. Those who have died in tragedies died according to God's timing. Are we ready for it? And then we can go to the book of Job. The book of Job reveals another positive answer for the existence of suffering. The book of Job is interesting in our discussion of this problem here today because it actually is the theme of the whole of the book. It's an argument in the form of a story. Job is one of the oldest books in the Bible showing you that this question is an ancient question and one that God wanted to deal with really fast when he wrote scripture for us. So Satan is standing before God from walking to and fro upon the earth. Then the Lord speaks to him. The Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth? A blameless and upright man, one who fears God, and he shuns evil. So Satan answered the Lord and said, Does God or does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge of protection around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. But now stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. Satan is saying, bring calamity to him on what he owns, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your power. Satan's given permission for calamity. But do not lay a hand on his person. It is regulated by God. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And it says this, the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my Job? This, or Job, this is the second time. 
he still holds fast to his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without cause. But Satan says, stretch out your hand now, touch his bone in his flesh, bring disaster upon his flesh, bring calamity on his flesh, he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, he's in your hand, but spare his life, regulated by God. You can go this far, no farther. And what you know in the book of Job is that he endures all forms of evil and suffering at the hand of Satan in two major waves. Both forms of evil. Evil pours out him in both ways. Uh, ethical evil in the sense that evil men come and kill his family. Natural evils in the sense of storm and health come against him. Aside from Christ, I don't know of anyone who has suffered so greatly in the scriptures. And in Job's discussion with his friends, he's even trying to figure this out. Job 21, 7 to 16, he's asking the question that Habakkuk was asking. He's asking the question that some of these other guys in Scripture are asking. But in the end, God does answer Job. But he never really reveals how the suffering was caused. He never talks about Satan. Those details are left hidden. The focus of God's answer are on 40 rhetorical questions centered on educating Job about who he is as a creator, sovereign, benevolent, loving God. God wants Job to focus on who God is in his trials, and he doesn't give him any other answers. Know who God is and recognize that your trials are accounted for in his plan for you. Every work of God in the natural world is carefully selected and considered in his plan. So is every minute of your suffering. It is all carefully orchestrated. In the end of the book, there's essentially no answer for Job except for a call on him to focus upon the Lord in his faith. Job ends up then in this faith-filled response. Look at what he says. I know that you can do everything. And that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. You asked, who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. So if someone were to ask you, why God, why a good God would allow for so much evil and suffering in the world, one scriptural answer based off of Job would be, God uses suffering to men. To test men. But his character and knowledge is to be trusted through it. God uses suffering to test man. But his character and knowledge is to be trusted. That's one possible answer. So with regards to the problem of evil, we ultimately hope and rest in the wonderful knowledge, eternal purposes of God. Job's history is a wonderful way to communicate this problem to believers and unbelievers. In fact, this is the one I probably use the most. It's an answer in the form of a story. And at the end, it comes out, God has purposes in everything. You simply have to trust in him. So how do we summarize everything that we've looked at? So if someone were to ask you why a good God would allow for so much evil in this world, you have some answers for them. You have this answer. Moral evil and suffering are because of evil people, but the wicked will be brought to justice by God in time. 
Because through death, God awakens the living and provides us with wisdom with regards to our eternity. Because some forms of suffering will actually glorify him and be a megaphone to the gospel and lead people to Christ. Because tragedies are ways God removes people from the earth, the question is really, have we repented yet? Are we ready for death? And because God uses suffering to test man, but his character and his knowledge needs to be trusted. These scriptures are just a few of what could have been added into in a completely other sermon. I didn't even talk about Joseph. We didn't even talk about Genesis 50, 20. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about it this day to save many peoples alive. So another answer you could do, we could do a whole another sermon on it, is God permits suffering and evil to save the lives of others in the future. You just don't know what he's going to do. It's, there's a lot going on. He never gives you all the answers, but he gives you some answers for why some have happened. And that helps. It brings comfort in certain ways, right? With all these scriptures, these are gold for us. Because you are going to be encouraging Christians in your walk. You're going to be encouraging many who are going to go through cancer. You're going to be encouraging many who are going to be upset with the suffering and the corruption going on in the world and wondering, how should I view these things? You're going to be talking with brothers and sisters. You're going to be talking with family members. You're going to be talking with your children. You're going to be talking with people that are out in the world on the streets and those that you're going to be working with. You have some answers here in the Scripture. These Scriptures will correct bad theology about God and authoritative healing ministries that claim to bring, that claim to say that all calamity and evil has to be taken in authority over by the Christian. We do ask God to heal us. James 5.14 says, Anyone among you sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. But if healing does not come in this life, we cannot lose hope or assume that it's a lack of our faith. Instead, we can acknowledge that our suffering is not the type that will glorify God through a healing right now, but it will glorify Him through some other way, some other channel, and we must be content in that. We must also pray for endurance. We can always endure pain if there is an end in mind and a plan behind it by our heavenly creator. So in conclusion, ultimately these answers can be used as you share the gospel because suffering is actually at the heart of the gospel itself. The God-man suffered for us, took on more suffering than anyone else ever could, and he took on suffering in my place for my evil. He took on a full accumulation of what I deserve as death. I deserve suffering for eternity. He takes it from me. And there's no penalty left for me to receive through Christ and his cross. We also see in scripture that there is a promise of a full physical and scriptural restoration and redemption for sinners. God will defeat all evil and suffering very soon. For every person who is found in Christ, this life on earth that you have right now is the maximum amount of suffering you will ever have. Isn't that profound? This is it. This is the most. Without Christ, 
This life will be the maximum amount of pleasure you will ever enjoy. We need Christ. We need the cross. We need salvation. The Lord sent the God-man Jesus Christ to live and suffer in this way for our stead, for the penalty and suffering that we deserve. Although our suffering continues on earth, we will ultimately escape that suffering through Christ. And this is our hope. That's the hope we want to give to everyone. Not just an answer for this question, but that it might lead them into another. And the question of the gospel. And have they come to Christ yet? The climax of Scripture ends with all forms of suffering being eliminated from existence. That God's people taking on new bodies that cannot experience pain, suffering, or death anymore, and one day will wake up to a world of, without suffering, and this question will never be asked again. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks. We thank you that your scripture gives us answers. We thank you that there's still mystery in this question. We don't know all of the reasons for every form of suffering that comes. We don't know the reason for every death, every t tornado or tsunami. We don't know. But there's a variety of answers, or there's a variety of ways that you have answered this question in Scripture. And so while I can't say to the world, this earthquake was caused by this, I could say it could have been caused by these things. And that is good for us that we don't have full access to everything because we can't comprehend the glory, the greatness of the knowledge that you have. No one can even think into that. It's too much for us. It is too great and wonderful for us to go into your mind to that depth. So we are content and happy with the scriptures that you've given us regarding this issue. We pray, Lord, that you would help us now to come in contact with people that are going to ask this question so that we might be able to provide an answer. Be with us and help us to be good stewards of our faith, of the scriptures, and may this bring comfort to us in this day. And we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you so much for all of your time. If, we have, if you have more questions or anything, I'll be hanging around a little bit afterwards here. But next week's question, what we're going to be dealing with, is why would a good God send people to hell? So the question of hell is a heavy one. Come prayerfully. But it is one that is a very good question. Another one that I think that we ought to have answers for. And the scripture does give us answers for. So with that, thank you guys for, for coming. And we will hopefully see you guys next week. God bless.